Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore, and welcome to another episode of the What's Up webcast. Uh, the What's Up webcast takes place every Friday right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. We cover everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks uh, for observing and imaging. And then, of course, the last Friday of the month, we have a special guest on to come hang out with us. And, of course, it is that Friday. Um, so if you've never joined us before, thanks for being here. Uh, if you've joined us before, happy Friday, and thanks for spending your morning with us. Um, so, like I said before, it is the last Friday of the month, which means we have a special guest here. And today we have Director of Lowell Observatory, Dr. Jeff Hall, who's joining us from Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, we'll be talking about his interest in astronomy and, of course, the world-famous Lowell Observatory. Um, and if you haven't been... Make sure you get up there at some point, even if you're stopping by through Arizona. It's definitely a definite place that you need to stop and check out. So I'm going to bring Jeff on and we're going to get started. So good morning, Jeff. Thanks for uh, being with us this morning. Morning, Kevin. How are you? Nice to be here. Yeah, um, I, I know your schedule is busy. And um, again, it's... I. It's awesome to just have you here with us this morning. So I ask everyone not to jump into it. I know we're kind of tight on time this morning, but um, I ask everyone the same question on the webcasts um, as we get started. And that's how did you get started with your interest in astronomy? Sure, it, it goes all the way back to childhood. Um, as a kid, I was always interested in science in general, I bounced back and forth from thinking, well, I'll be a physician or maybe I'll be out for a while. I was going to be an entomologist, which uh, thrilled my parents, having my bedroom filled with various vermin and, and the like. Um, but, uh, you know, then we had nice skies. I grew up in a very rural area in the East and, and always curious about astronomy. Um, my parents got me a small telescope when I was a kid and, you know, got some books and got interested in it and ended up, you know, I started college as a physics major with the idea that, yeah, I was probably going to go ahead and end up in grad school in astronomy and then see where I ended up. So it's been a lifelong uh, interest and certainly a, a great pursuit and a great field to work in. Awesome. Um, so you know, you go through college, you do all your stuff. I know you have a doctor's doctorate degree. Um, at what point did what point did you get up to where you're at now at Lowell? Because I know to become a director, you know, you probably had a fair share of experience before becoming the director of Lowell. Um, yeah, so I I got my PhD in 1991. Uh, at Penn State after doing my undergrad work at Johns Hopkins and uh, stayed at, at Penn State one extra year um, as an, an instructor, uh, wrapping up a few things with my thesis advisor. And then the, a postdoctoral position opened up here at Lowell in Flagstaff. Um, so in summer 92, I was actually in that very happy position of having two postdoc offers, uh, one here and one with the, the Cool Star Group up in uh, Boulder with uh, Jeff Linsky and his collaborators. And, you know, that was, that was a tough decision, but I ended up choosing Flagstaff. It was a typical three-year NSF grant, um, but the nature of the research was much longer term. It, this has been a program of observing uh, the solar activity cycle 
and the activity cycles of about 100 stars, very similar to the sun to put a broader perspective on, on the kinds of variations that sun-like stars can exhibit. And that's been a really interesting thing to be involved with because it kind of touches on solar influences on the space environment and the atmosphere, and therefore you know, the extent to which the sun does or does not modulate uh, climate change. So a very time, timely and interesting topic. But we, we got the, the grant renewed uh, for another three years, and then the director at the time, Bob Millis, asked me if I'd like to sort of go half and half on research and managing the outreach programs, and then I got into some fundraising and just kind of sank deeper into the molasses, you know, and, um, and then in 2010, I was appointed the observatory's director, so I've pretty much spent my whole career here, love living in Arizona, and love working at Lowell. It's a, a terrific place. And um, for those who haven't, I mean, I, I live in Phoenix. I've spent my whole life in Arizona for the most part. Um, every every year in June, we go to the Grand Canyon Star Party, my family and I. So we make it a point to stop at Lowell just to see what's going on up there. So um, it's somewhere that I think is really awesome on both a historical place and then it's just a cool place to be. But for those who haven't been there, it's definitely worth stopping by, but what's really neat is you guys have the the Clark refractor, which is hmm? it's like a hundred and something odd years old. And twenty five. Okay, I, I knew. So what's really been neat about Lowell is you could on any clear night, um, you could go up there. I I remember back early teens, the first when I was getting seriously into astronomy. We went up there for my birthday, and the first time I saw M13 was through the 24-inch oh, part, yeah. <laughs> which everything is ruined at that point, because nothing <laughs> levels to that. But So what's neat is you can go up there and you can still use that historic telescope visually, but over the last couple of years, you guys have really expanded your outreach uh, portfolio um, locally there. Can you tell everyone about your new facilities and stuff that you've yeah, put in place? Yeah, and, and what we've done so far is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. So, you know, we've, yeah, we've used the, the Clark uh, for, you know, hard ever since I've been here. And we started really ramping up the public programs when we opened the Steel Visitor Center in 1994, which was part of the observatory's centennial. So, so yeah, the Clark is this beautiful 24-inch refractor with the best imaginable optics. You know, the Alvin Clark was the premier builder of the day and Lowell purchased the very best. Um, that telescope was completely restored in 2014 by our own technical team. Um, and it's just beautiful now. But in uh, 2017, we, we've developed, yeah, a full campus master plan because the Steel Visitor Center is way over capacity. Uh, the design is maybe 60 to 70,000 visitors a year. And before COVID hit, we were 105,000 and continuing on up. So we were just bursting at the seams. So the first component that we have developed is the Giovanni Open Deck Observatory, uh, which uh, was a $4.4 million project, um, about uh, two years and two months from being a twinkle in our eye to raising the money, building it, and having the grand opening ceremonies four months before we had to shut down for the virus, you know, just lovely. And so this beautiful telescope suite, which is really fabulous has been sitting there mostly unused for the past year. Um, uh, but anyway, it's a suite of six telescopes 
uh, from uh, including a 32 inch star structure, which is enough aperture for nebulae. You can actually get some color, uh, just visually observing some of the brighter nebulae. Um, a beautiful um, eight inch Moonraker refractor. There's a pair of 14 and 17 inch plane waves uh, connected to an imager and a spectrometer uh, that project images on a screen with a with a nice Malin cam system. Um, so so this is this is really a premier observing facility. The telescopes are permanently mounted under a building that rolls back, and then you have this open deck. I see, yeah, you've got a picture of it there. You can this is obviously on our website. Yeah, so there's a picture of of the. Uh, the full telescope suite with the building rolled away. Uh, the educators just control all of this with iPads and it's really fast and efficient. So, so yeah, and, and this is the first stage of our major capital expansion. We are now really close to groundbreaking for the new Astronomy Discovery Center, uh, which we hope to open late 23, maybe early 24. It's a $37 million project. In a little under two years, despite the pandemic, we've raised 30 million, which is close enough for us to say go and, and break ground as soon as we get all the permitting boxes checked. Um, so this will be where the Steel Visitor Center is about 6,500 square feet. This is about 40,000. Um, and the some of the, the marquee components there will be uh, an immersive indoor theater instead of a full dome planetarium. We're going with sort of an IMAX on steroids with a mm. 165 degree wraparound screen. And then for our planetarium, we will use Flagstaff's dark skies. And so part of the visitor experience is to go up on the roof to what we call the dark sky planetarium an open air 200 seat amphitheater. The seats are individually heatable um, so that everyone can in Flagstaff's cooler climate, adjust the seats so your posterior is comfortable and you can enjoy the enjoy the show and we'll do live laser tours of the night sky from sort of 50 feet up and nothing but just gorgeous horizon everywhere. So it's going to be a really cool facility and, and the, the, the vision in our strategic plan is to be the premier astronomy education destination in the world. And that's, that's what we're shooting for. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that actually. So. Neither, neither can we. We're yeah. a bit here. Um, I know someone was asking really quick, and since we're kind of talking about the the public viewing and stuff like that, are you guys still open with the whole COVID situation, or how's we, that working? Yep, yep, yep. You can go to our website and look at our phased reopening plan. Uh, we have phases one, two, three. It's kind of lined up with CDC. Uh, we've, we've really tried to follow the science and make very data-driven decisions as we've gone along. And, you know, we were the first... Uh, attraction in Flagstaff to close last March. And we made that decision um, by just doing the math and looking at our normal spring break, break crowds. And even at that point, it was clear we had a pretty significant chance of having infected people on the hill. So, so the data told us to shut down and we did. Um, last August, we reopened in very limited fashion. And the, you know, with very high end programs, we'd never really tried those kinds of much higher personalized kind of pricey things before um, it had always just been general admission but you know despite a fairly lofty price point they they sold out it, it pained me a little bit because there are lots of folks where that's just not affordable and i'm really glad now that we've we've moved into our phase two and so we're doing many more guided tours at much lower price point and just yesterday i was talking with the the outreach supervisors about 
projecting when we might go to our phase 3A. And that's when we'll start reopening the general admission. And um, at that point, what we will probably do is just reopen it, but keep indoor occupancies limited for now until the immunity level gets a little bit higher than it is, you know. The, I track it daily, and I think we're sitting around 55%, at least partially immune in Arizona when you add everybody who's been vaccinated, as well as everybody who's had it and built up natural immunity. So let that get a little higher, let the staff have some comfort with the programs, and maybe later this summer we'll start getting really back to normal and, and see those telescopes at the Godo in regular use once more. Awesome. Well, I Again, I can't wait to get back up there and see the facilities yeah, and yeah, stuff like that. Forward to seeing you. Um, so I I know there's there's Lowell and you walk around the grounds and stuff like that. You've got the Goto deck. Um, but you guys still do active research, but oh, yeah. Lowell's kind of an interesting setup because there's obviously what's up on the hill. And if you guys don't know what you're talking about, it's Mars Hill and Flagstaff. Um you can see the 24 inch Clark uh, observatory from downtown Flagstaff. That's okay. kind of the pendant of the entire town, I think. Um, but do you, you guys have several telescopes on the hill, plus basically two other locations um, that you do research. Can you talk about what you're doing in each spot? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and yeah, you know, we, we, we are, Lowell is unique and being completely independent you know most astronomy is associated with the university department or one of the federal or national facilities um and and you know our, our mission really is to discover things about the universe and communicate that and and you know we communicate it um in large fashion to the general public but we also communicate it to professional audiences through all of the research programs. We have a faculty of 14 PhD level astronomers, which is equivalent to a pretty substantial university department. And they are internationally renowned in their various fields of study, a really top-notch group of researchers. And then all the postdocs, uh, pre-docs, you know, undergraduate interns, uh, a lot of them from Northern Arizona University here in FLAG, um, Research associates, you know, the sci staff is probably 30 or 30 to 40 folks. Um, and so we maintain two dark sky research sites out of town. And one is at Anderson Mesa. And so if you drive from Phoenix up to Flag via um, Highway 87 and then come up through Payson and up that way, you'll go right by it. Um, and we opened that site in 1960. Um, and we operate several telescopes out there. Uh, one of our partners, Boston University, actually owns one of the telescopes. Now, we sold our old 1.8-meter telescope to them, and it's now the Perkins uh, Telescope Observatory. We also operate the Navy Precision Optical Interferometer for the, the U.S. Naval Observatory, and that's a really major project that is presently undergoing a multi-million dollar upgrade to larger apertures. And so that's this big Y-shaped thing that stretches across a whole quarter mile of the Mesa you know, doing interferometric observations. So, so there's that site, um, but then farther down Lake Mary Road, right next to the Happy Jack Ranger Station is the 4.3 meter Lowell Discovery Telescope. And this has really been something that had been on the observatory's radar since I joined as a postdoc in 92. Uh, right at the time, 
the management and the trustee and the advisory board had made a strategic decision that Lowell was not going to be just a museum and a, a, a quaint you know, place of interest, but a forefront uh, center of astronomical research and, and planetary science research. And the conclusion was we needed a bigger light bucket. You know, we needed a modern telescope to remain competitive um, as a research institution. And so we came up with the idea of building our own four meter class telescope, which is unheard of for a single institution to do it. And you could argue at the time, even harebrained for an institution of our size to imagine we could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, we, the thinking for that got going in the 90s. The fundraising kind of started in the early 2000s. Um, very long story of how that all eventually worked out, which we can go over if anybody would like to put something in the Q&A. But suffice to say, we reached first light in July of 2012. Um, so after you know, 15 years of, of vision and planning and building, um, and $53 million later, which is an interesting story in its own right of how we handled all of that. Um, we got it fully commissioned by the end of 2014. A two-year commissioning for a facility like that is pretty lickety-split. And regular science operations since then. And yeah, we, we have several university partners. Um, so NAU here in Flag, uh, Boston University, University of Maryland and Toledo, and Yale. Um, and it's a, a very versatile telescope. The instrument cube at the RC Focus allows you to switch between five different instruments. So it's got a, a primary imager, you know, the big, huge CCD for all the imaging studies, um, optical and infrared spectrographs, um, and most recently, uh, this cool instrument called Express, the Extreme Precision Spectrograph, which was built at Yale and is, is connected by a fiber feed to the four-meter telescope, and it lives downstairs. And the goal of that is to do ultra-high precision Uh, basically radial velocity searches for Earth mass planets around solar mass stars. Mm -hmm. And that requires you to be able to detect wobble in the spectral lines at a precision of about 10 centimeters per second, because that's the reflex motion that Earth imparts on the sun and Venus as as they go around. Um, So this is the, the most high precision, most powerful machine telescope combination of its type in the world for these sorts of of um, exoplanet studies. Um, so, so yeah, with that, we're obviously we're in the business of discovering and characterizing exoplanets, but we remain very active in planetary science, particularly small bodies uh, in the solar system, icy moons, comets, NEOs. Um, we also have a number of astronomers in stellar astrophysics. You know, I'm an optical spectroscopist specializing in sort of the lower, the lower half of the, the main sequence. Um, and then some extragalactic folks who do dynamics, large-scale structure, and evolution of, of dwarf galaxies and the massive galaxies. So it spans a whole lot of, of topics. And you know, we carry those programs up continuously and really make an effort to connect the results of those into the outreach programs and, and let people talk to real live astronomers and, and hear what's going on in the field. That's amazing. I've had the ability to get up and actually see the Discovery Channel telescope a couple years ago and for those of you who are watching um the discovery channel site that's not an open to the public 
location. You can see it off the road, but you have to get real special tour access for you do. And I'll give you one quick update on that. Um, you mentioned the name, and that's correct. Discovery Channel Telescope came um, because John Hendricks, who was the founder and former CEO of Discovery, is a member of our advisory board. And he was he kind of proposed the, the $10 million deal between Lowell and Discovery that, that got that initial infusion of cash into the project. We were kind of spinning our wheels until, you know, all of a sudden somebody gives you $10 million, like, ah, we can go, you know. Yeah. Um, but since then, actually within the past um, roughly year, we have renamed it with a new agreement with Discovery because they're no longer Discovery Communications, they're Discovery Inc. Mm -hmm. um, and one issue was when you say Discovery Channel Telescope, you know, it's it's a branding issue. Nowhere is there any indication that it has anything to do with Lowell. And I regularly get emails, even from, you know, Flagstaff city staff and council sometimes saying, can you put me in touch with whoever operates Discovery's telescope out there? <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. That's, that's, that's actually Lowell's telescope. So with agreement, it is now called the Lowell Discovery Telescope. And so Discovery is kind of playing a double meaning there. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and that, that communicates that this is solely owned and operated by Lowell Observatory uh, in partnership with a number of um, institutions that uh, purchase observing time on the facility annually, about half of it, the partners use. Um, so, so yeah, and it's, it is, uh, you know, I mean, four meters is not gigantic by the standards of the largest aperture ground-based telescopes, of course, but four meters owned and operated solely by one nonprofit institution is pretty unusual. And, and it's a huge competitive advantage for for our faculty and for our partners yeah we have a, a another guest who's going to be on in a couple months he is observing for um out at whipple observatory and yeah. that's something we're actually going to talk about is i think a lot of people like think oh it's an 8.4 meter you know it's owned by blah 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 it's like these telescopes are so expensive that they have to be joint you know things so the that's what I, and if you ever see a photo or actually get to go to the uh, Discovery Telescope, it's a crazy machine. And the fact that you guys basically, that's yours is, you know, it's, it's yes. one thing for like a school to be like, oh, we have a one meter or we have a 60 inch, but for you to have a 4.3 meter, it's yeah. like, that's, that's it's pretty, pretty cool. top tier. So. And, you know, before we got the instrument suite completely built out because there's five ports on the instrument cube. Um, there was occasionally open ports and from time to time for our high level donors, we put an eyepiece on it <laughs> and looked through a four meter telescope and man, the, the nebulae are amazing because you can almost see the color coming through the eyepiece. <laughs> uh, if you ever do that again, I will be on the list for that, so. Yeah, okay. Um, well, cool. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to learn more about uh, the Lowell Discovery Telescope, which I, I just thought that was weird that Lowell wasn't more part of it. So I, that's I like that it's been changed for that. So um, someone wanted to know while we're still talking about the Discovery Telescope, what's the focal length of that telescope? Do you know? So, yeah, at prime focus, it's about I mean, at the Ritchie creation focus, it's about F6. 
Um, okay. It is also configurable for prime focus observations that the top end with the secondary mirror is actually removable. And at that point, it would be about F2. And one of the original thoughts was you could put a giant prime focus camera up there for very wide field surveys of you know NEOs or whatever you want to do. And this is something that Lowell has long done, such as like scanning this the mm-hmm. for a new planet. Um, the problem was um, that camera it alone um, would have been another $20 million. And, you know, just building the telescope, I always felt like, you know, see these pictures of the, the anaconda that's just swallowed a pig, you know, and you've got this huge, uh, we digest this first. So, so at the moment, we don't have any plans to implement uh, prime focus. And in any case, we have a lot of commitments to our partners that really require the rich equation focus uh, instruments to be on there. So, so it's got a good capable suite now and, and we're, we're happy with that. The, the uh, imaging field of view of the prime imager uh, is about 13 by 13 arc minutes. So, okay. you know, it's not huge, but decent. Yeah. But for the galactic targets and stuff like sure. that, that's, but it's nice to know that in the future, you guys are set up to, hey, we, we do want to do this. We're, we're good we, to go. So. We designed it to be very Swiss Army knife because in addition to the prime focus, uh, we could also build uh, a tertiary you know, to sit in the, the basically the hole of the primary because there are bent cast ports all around the main uh, elevation ring. But again, you know, that's obviously a huge uh, project to design mm-hmm. and implement the tertiary and uh, the instruments, you know, it's got two um, Naismith ports, so it can accept very heavy, massive instruments out there. But, you know, these, as, as you know, by their nature, these are 10, $20 million projects and yeah. they're not actively on the table right now. Well, you guys are all set for it at least. So. We, are, we are set with a very versatile four meter. Yep. Um, I know going back to the outreach program, you guys have another telescope that you just put in um there's a small dome next to the 24 inch clark which originally had a it's the McAllister telescope correct um that was just upgraded upgraded um recently too which is and that's part of your expansion plan as well is that another telescope you can like rent out or use on a given you do. Night? we've been using it throughout for the premium access programs ever since we started those last august so this is the 24 inch uh brian dyer telescope uh which was totally i mean we secured the gift and did the installation all during the pandemic this was only installed last year and it's mostly outside and you open the dome and it hasn't it wasn't dangerous to do so um so that this the the old telescope in there was a 16 inch bowler and shivens uh that we were gifted um from northwestern back in the 1990s when they just decommissioned their old um lindheimer observatory on the shore of lake michigan and um, we got the 16 and 40 inch Bowler and Shivens telescopes that were in their domes. Um, that was really not an optimal telescope for eyepiece viewing. It's a very long, I think it's about F16. So there's not much of a field of view. And the image quality was not great. I mean, it was very old. Um, but we did have a nice dome up there. So we got, we, moved out the the 16 inch and replaced it with a 24 inch plane wave which nicely complements the uh, 14 and 17 inch plane waves um up at the up at the godo and we're by the way we're installing we're upgrading the navy interferometer with 
three and possibly six one meter plane waves. Um, I'm practically thinking I should call it plane wave at this point and ask for bulk rate or something. Yeah. Um, but they, they're really fabulous telescopes. And so, so yeah, the nice thing about the Dyer is it's a 24 inch aperture, uh, just like the Clark. And so just right there on their observing plaza, we can talk about you know, a 24 inch aperture from a century ago as a refractor and a very modern, you know, 24 inch, you know, you know uh, and sort of show people how the technology and the, the design has evolved over a century. Oh, that's actually a really cool way to look at. Yeah, because especially I know the, the Clark, you still have to manually pull that scope around. Um, where you go into the new 24 inch and you know it's direct drive and quiet and you can't hear anything oh, and stuff yeah like that. the outreach staff calls the plane waves the ninja telescopes because of how fast they slew mm -hmm. uh, and although i will say since the clark has been restored it's this six ton telescope I, I love showing people this you can go in there and and push it with a finger and you know it just it just moves and it's beautiful um is there anything about Lowell that you're that most people don't know about that you're that you like telling people like here's this cool tidbit that you might not actually know or something like that from Lowell um well we've we've I mean everything about Lowell is cool of course mm. but I mean we've we've covered we've covered a lot of them just I, I you know a lot of people don't know about our very own four meter telescope, mm -hmm. partly because it's kind of been obscured by its name for several years. But, you know, the, I, the, the fact that building that telescope you know, was an existential risk for the observatory. And this is certainly one tidbit is we are nothing if not, you know, not risk averse. Um, you know, if, if that telescope had failed in a fundamental way, um, the, the financial exposure was so great. I, I don't see how we could have survived. And even mm. it, as it was, we had to leverage $20 million in debt against our endowment to finish that thing. And mm. we have since retired all of that debt. You know, we're still like, you know, all nonprofits kind of live on the financial edge and we are still under tremendous strain having our Outreach programs shut down for 15 months is $3 million a year out of the operating budget. And that, that has not helped, but you know, we're still flying and we've completely retired the DCT, the DCT, LDT um, debt. So, so, you know, that's, that's really one of our, uh, right now, it's definitely our, our crown jewel. The other, the other cool thing that people can see when they come here is just the amount of, of history you accumulate after 127 years. And, the things in 2013, we built the new Putnam Collection Center, and that houses, um, well, it's now our library, and it has a proper repository for all of the artifacts, both papers as well as three-dimensional things. It's really fascinating, and it's, it's, it's proper, right? It's got a proper receiving facility with a freezer and processing areas for all the old papers, you know, strict climate control in the repository, because we have simply irreplaceable things, you know, down in the basement of the Slifer building. There, there are these little vaults down in there. The public never gets to see these because it's not on the normal tour, but you go into these inner sanctums and right here you pull out is 
the original Pluto discovery plate from 1930. You know, you, you can't ensure that. It's, mm-hmm. it's an irreplaceable treasure of, of discovery. And likewise, when we built the new collection center, our volunteers started going through decades of accumulated stuff. It's just all over campus, right? It's in the basements or it's in the attics. And, and you know, separate out the priceless stuff from just the, the junk. Um, and one of our volunteers was going through and found this old acidy folder and opened it up. And there's this yellowed piece of paper in it. And it was the disembodied last page of Percival Lowell's final night alive. He was observing Amalthea. And there's, you know, his kind of spidery script trailing off at the end of the night. It was the last thing he ever wrote. And you just get goosebumps looking at these these sort of priceless things that we're now able to preserve uh, for for all time. So so you know this 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 history is often a little bit uh, hidden behind the really cool modern research we're doing. But but it's it's a vital part of what's happened here, and we're doing our best to preserve it. Yeah, Lowell is one of those interesting places. It's it's you know for those who live in LA, you have uh, Mount Wilson, and then you have you have all these major sites that have contributed to the history of modern day astronomy, and Lowell is one of those. So I you know it's cool to go to some of the modern observatories, but that's what I like stepping on to the the grounds up there. We've been to McDonald Observatory when we were in Texas, and to go into the history and the vaults that are within there oh, you know it's it's amazing stuff yeah, yeah. That's mount in wilson there. mount wilson is just a spectacular place um in fact we've got sort of an, an, a consortium of observatories that we've formed in the past couple of years it's, it was kind of getting up and running and then guess what covid you know um but you know yerkes and lick and palomar and Mount Wilson, you know, are all kind of plugged into this group along with with a number of others. And yeah, the historic legacy of these places and, and the sorts of observations that have made. You know, one here's here's one tidbit. Um, yeah, something you mentioned people may not know about Lowell that connects to to uh, to um, the other historic observatories. We're best known probably for the discovery of Pluto in 1930, but the very first observations of cosmological redshifts that led to the big bang theory were done here in 1912 by vm slifer hmm. um, you know the first galaxy he observed with the clark refractor was andromeda and you know you noticed this incredible motion in approach and then started observing some of these other spiral nebulae and lo and behold you know they're all flying away and and slifer wrote this this, I don't know, two-page paper in a 1914 astrophysical journal article. And it's it's just one of the most beautifully understated things. I'll have to paraphrase it. But, you know, right at the end, he presents his observations of these high recession velocities and says something like, you know, somebody ought to follow up on this because there might be something interesting here. And it's like, yeah, there sure is. So Hubble, you know, visited Lowell and visited with Slifer and then used those observations and then obviously continued his own um and that led to modern cosmology mm-hmm. so yeah this is this is the legacy of these historic places that's i love that stuff i think that's my favorite thing about astronomy is the i almost wonder if i'm in the wrong era of when astronomy because the the early 1900s is when serious astronomy was 
basically born. Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting point. I I, I certainly agree. You know, 1900 to 1930. I mean, look look at the advances. Um, you know, both in terms of just observationally, you know, and sort of as far as our understanding of the universe beyond Neptune, um, but also you know those are the years of the development of relativity, mm-hmm. quantum mechanics, and and you know these theories that underpin everything. But on the other hand, today, I mean, we have the ability to look for biomarkers in an exo-Earth around a star a hundred trillion miles away. And that's a pretty cool time to be alive, yeah. too. <laughs> it's, it's all these different things. that, And then you wonder, okay, there's the early 1900s, there's modern day, and then you have to think, I'm sure it's someone in your position, too, where we're going to be the next stepping stone, whatever is unearthed now. We'll, like, It's just crazy oh. to think where you're going at that oh, point. Oh, I know. I love going to schools and you know i'm talking to a high school class or something about astronomy or whatever and and point out you know guys when i was your age right we had no email no internet no cell phone you know no world wide web you know nothing and and of course they're looking at me like i'm a triceratops or something and and, uh, you know and yet that was you know at least to my increasingly fossilized brain that wasn't that long ago and trying to imagine what these kids and 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 their kids are going to have access to and the kind of technology they'll be using in 2050 you know i hope i'm still around to see it because i bet we can't even imagine mm-hmm. you know we'll we'll look at the the processing capabilities and communications capabilities we have today and it'll be like good grief how did we ever survive yeah <laughs> um well uh just so you guys know um Jeff's got a schedule. Um, he's got something else going on here shortly. So this episode's going to be a little shorter. I'm going to, there's some things I want to tell you guys about even after I have to let Jeff go. But um, we're about at that 10 minute mark. So if you guys have Q&A questions, now would be the time to do it. I know there's a couple in there. So we'll start with those. But if you've got them, now's the time to type those out. Um, the first, this one's actually really interesting for your specialty uh hi dr jeff do you have an opinion on the solar abundance question regarding the sun's metallic metallicity um the sun has doesn't have a particularly extraordinary metallicity um when we look at the nearest um solar analogs uh we find that the sun is a little bit um deficient in certain molecular or atomic species. Um, It's also unusually sedate in terms of its overall variability and and whether those are connected is not entirely clear. Um, But it, you know, there's, there's no real anomalies in the solar abundance relative to the the most sun-like stars we can see when we, when we look out there. Awesome. Um, I had a question for you. Um, Oh, it slipped my mind, unfortunately. So uh, it'll come back to me, I'm sure, as other people type in here uh, real quickly. Is there, where do you see Lowell's um, next big uh, step? Like, I know Discovery was one, and now you're, we're just starting to take advantage of that. And now you've got the new outreach stuff. Is there like a grand uh, 
final vision for where you guys plan to go even after the new outreach center is done? Yeah, that's certainly going to post-date my tenure. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, although I am getting to that that point of life and career where I'm really starting to to look towards, you know, who might succeed me and and you know, what do we what do we what we collectively leave the staff who will be here in 10 or 15 years with. Um, and so we, we've talked about a number of things. Uh, you know, there's certainly the possibility of being involved in space missions at some level. Um, you know, eventually we will need to design and build the second generation of instruments for the Lowell Discovery Telescope. That's a huge undertaking that is years of, of, of planning just to decide what you, what you need. Um, you know, the uh, building the telescope has has enormously expanded the observatory. Mm -hmm. you know, just I, I remember working on the budgets, you know, no more than eight or nine years ago, and putting together our, you know, I don't know, five five point million dollar, five point five million dollar operating budget. This year it's fourteen point five. Mm -hmm. You know, which you know, and instead of fifty employees, we've got about one hundred and thirty. Um, so this has been a, a time of radical transformation for the observatory. And what we're hoping, you know, once we, you know, the the telescope is the big telescope is working really smoothly. Um, the Astronomy Discovery Center has multiple motivations. You know, obviously it's mission driven. We want to be able to deliver the best possible programs to all the people who can't fit into our current center just because there's too much interest and too much demand. But there's also a business model in it, you know, with, with increased attendance, there is greatly increased earned income to the observatory that we will turn right back into the science mission. And so, you know, I can foresee an expansion of the faculty and their, you know, the, the suite of things we do. We try to give our faculty a scientific blank check to pursue whatever interests them. Um, so I, I would hope to see a, a real scientific golden age blossoming here with these these expanded capabilities and the incredible observing assets that we have. So yeah, so whenever I step down, that's kind of what I, you know, you want to leave your successor with a nice stable situation that they can then run with. Awesome. Well, I certainly look forward to see where Lowell's going. I'm already excited to see the new you know, outreach center in the next couple of years because I've been to the the current one, which is nice. But yeah, I, I know that what it's the new one's going to be is going to be whole new, so. whole new horizon here. Yep. Um, for those who don't know, um, you can actually I've done it a couple times, and I know right now might not be you might be doing it. You can rent time like visually on the twenty four inch Clark still, can't you? I think it's on Sunday night. Yeah, we, we have we have yeah when we've been running those private programs for quite some time and really the the premium access programs that we started doing last August in just the early phase one of our reopening after the big summer wave of cases in Arizona went down that's just kind of an expansion of these these private programs and since they are you know private exclusive very small group you know direct interaction throughout with the the educator you know they are pricier um but but they're a neat experience for for you know groups of up to about 10. yeah no I've, the, the couple times i've been able to view privately on the clark i mean it's nice um when you go up there but generally it, it can get pretty busy and you're in line you get one target on oh, the yacht so it's, it's kind of cool to go up there with just a small group and see 
half a dozen targets or go with a list. I know oh, we've right. seen. And, and that's um, where the, the open deck observatory has really changed that equation because mm -hmm. instead of one humongous line at the Clark, you know, there's still a line, but now we've got these six other telescopes uh, permanently mounted and they all track. And so not only are they um, really outstanding to view through, but it's really efficient because the educators don't have to stop and repoint them. You know, they don't, it, it, you know, the control is much better. And so the lines just move faster and it's a much better experience for the guests. Um, and then lastly, if anybody's local um, and they want to get involved with Lowell, do you do volunteer work there or how would someone find out about getting involved with Lowell? Yeah, you could um, contact our volunteer coordinator, um, is Katie Blazek, um, K-D-C-A-T-I-E, at Lowell.edu. We're, like so many things, we're just sort of inching the volunteer program yeah. back into gear, so there's not a lot going on right now, but, you know, volunteers help in the outreach programs. Uh, there are, there's a large volunteer contingent working in the, the archives and the library, and there are going to be huge things going on there in the, in the near future. There's a lot to do and a lot of interesting work working with our history. So yeah, if you're interested, by all means, um, drop us a line. Awesome. Well, um, I don't see any other questions at the moment. I know I've got to let you go to um, a meeting here, but I <laughs> really appreciate you uh, spending the time with us this morning. Um, I know I could go pop shop and history with you for the next million oh, yeah. years. So yeah. Um, but uh, hopefully we can have you on again in the future sometime. And uh, but really appreciate you uh, having spending the time with me this morning. Oh, it's been great, and there's there's tons to discuss. I mean, for instance, one thing we've gotten heavily involved in uh, over the past decade is dark sky protection, uh, mm -hmm. both from you know ground-based light pollution. But in fact, the meeting I'm going to at eleven is um, I'm co-organizing a conference in July addressing the issue of these large new satellite constellations that are going on, mm. which has turned into a, you know, there's compelling reasons to want to offer broadband around the world that could benefit a lot of people, but there's also an impact on astronomy. And, you know, that right there could take up the whole hour show easily. So exactly. maybe sometime we can do that. Yeah. Um, one thing I, man, I'm not, not sure what's going on in my head this morning. Um, I'll have to ask you another time because I'm trying to get everybody set, but um, cool. Well, um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much Great. for being with here this morning. Um, and we'll hopefully we'll actually be able to see you in person sometime soon too. So hopefully we can see you and lots of the other viewers really soon as we get reopened and things really are getting better. And it's just great to see the world starting to come out of this. So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Um, have a great weekend and we will see you sometime soon. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. All right, guys. Um, so, uh, like I said, I had to let uh, Jeff go early, and um, he had another meeting to get to, which actually sounds rather interesting. But um, before we shut everything down, we are getting ready for a, a whole new uh, set of episodes coming up. Um, you can actually keep an eye on our YouTube uh, channel. Go ahead and subscribe to the channel, and it'll let you know when we're going to have uh, new episodes coming up. But we have a whole new schedule of events, uh, not events, but episodes. Um, we're planned all the way out to what's right now. Today is so we're about June. So 
June is already posted. All the episodes are already up there so you can see what's coming up. Uh, we have July, August, and September. Uh, we just finished scheduling all the episodes for that. We have some really cool speakers uh, coming up uh, for June. We have Brother Guy, who's the head of the Vatican Observatory. We had to pre-record that one because of the time differences, so that one's coming up. Um, in July, we have Dr. Vishnu Reddy from the Un uh, University of Arizona. He does a lot of satellite surveillance and asteroid detection with his students, so that's going to be a really cool episode. Um, August, we have Gil Esquierdo. He's a telescope operator for the Whipple Observatory. Um, he's going to tell us what it's like to actually operate and run uh, some of the professional telescopes that are up there so you can actually understand what it's like to be on a professional side of the, teles the astronomy and telescope world. And that brings us to August. And then September, uh, we just scheduled uh, Steve Bisk of Software Bisk. He's going to be on with us uh, then. And then, of course, we have another three months after that that we're getting together as we speak. Um, yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson would be cool, right? Um, we have some higher level people we're also trying to get, but they, you know, it gets difficult when you get someone like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or people of that level. So it's something that we would definitely like to do. It's just a matter of working all that out. So hopefully uh, we'll see. Um, that'd be awesome. So, but we'll see. I know there's been some requests for episodes. Um, we, we have an episode coming up where we're actually going to talk about SkyX, the, the imaging software for software BISC. Um, that actually does work with Skywatcher mounts. I'm going to go through a whole episode because that's what we use here. Um, whole episode about how to connect your, your SIN scan mount to that and get that to work. Uh, we have an episode coming up about the EvoGuide 50ED and all of its cool accessories. Um, and then we also, I know there was an episode request. Uh, someone was asking about doing like live stacking or live imaging for outreach. Um, we do have that episode scheduled. I believe that's around September. Um, so we have some cool stuff coming up. We have a lot of um, neat episodes that are planned. But if you, for whatever reason, have uh, an episode idea or there's something you want us to cover or look into, uh, go ahead and write to support at skywatcherusa.com and title it What's Up. Uh, that email is going to be changing here soon uh, to info at skywatcherusa.com as we kind of organize things a little bit better um, for supporting the webcast. So uh, we'll let you know when that transition happens. It's going to be here shortly. Um, that way we can handle any interest from the webcast on that email as well. So that's coming, um, and I'll probably talk about that next week um, when we make that transition. Um, another question, what about a uh, revolutionary image or two? I can't seem to figure out that thing. Or, or the, oh, the revolutionary imager. I haven't used that one too much, but we could talk about that in, the, in one of the upcoming episodes, I'm sure. Uh, some of these episode requests, they do take some time for us to do research to build the episode. So um, giving us some ideas is going to be a, a good thing to do. Um, another quick question, any updates on equipment coming in from the factory? Um, this is a good question and I'd actually like to take a moment to explain publicly to everyone what's actually going on um, with the supply chain stuff. So, cause we actually had to ask ourselves. 
So big issue right now globally is COVID affected a lot of the raw material factories. I don't know why or how or what it did, um, but regardless of what happened, the raw material uh, area was affected really hard. So what I'm saying with that is stuff to make glass, stuff to make electronic boards, all that uh, uh, raw material was hit really hard. So for any company or industry looking for those materials, it got harder. So we, of course, need electronic boards for all of our go-to technology. We need glass to make telescopes, but so do so does the photographic industry. The auto industry needs um, electronic boards. So everyone's trying to source this stuff. And that, of course, causes delays through the rest of it. And, of course, manpower. People were affected by COVID. And I know people are like, I'm tired of hearing about it. But that's the reality of it is while we are moving out of the whole COVID thing we're, and the wave is beyond us at this point, we're having to deal with the aftermath of all of that. So that's affected a lot of things. And of course, on top of raw materials being an issue, there's been a massive surge in interest in astronomy because everyone's stuck at home. Maybe you've got some extra money to play with. Um, and now people are buying stuff. So we got a drop in production because the factory was shut down and now it's hard to source some materials which causes delays but then you have this massive surge in interest and that backlogs everything so with that being said we are producing stuff all the time we have shipments of equipment coming in all the time the problem is a lot of that equipment or most of it is actually sold before it even gets to us so um, and we sell to dealers. We don't sell direct at the moment. So if you call us up asking for a lead time, I'm not going to be able to provide an accurate time. I'll tell you when you might be able to get it if you ordered one right now. However, the dealers, you know, all of our major dealers who you can see on our website, are constantly buying equipment and placing orders for inventory. They just tend to sell that inventory before it even gets to them. Um, but you might have to check around with some of the dealers when they're expecting their next shipment because odds are you can probably get something in the next couple months. Um, you just have to be patient and wait. And that's just kind of how the game's going to be for probably the next year or two. Um, it just kind of threw everything for a loop. So as long as you're patient and you're willing to just hang out and wait for your stuff, you'll get it. We, we, we're fulfilling orders all the time, as I'm sure many other companies in the industry are too. But that's kind of the reality of where things are at. I wish we had stuff to just sell all the time, but it's just not the case right now. So, But the positive of the whole thing, though, is the telescope industry has never been better. Um, all the companies are doing really well, from my understanding. So that just means... Hopefully we'll see a surge of really cool products coming out in the future. And I know we've got a ton of cool stuff too that's on the burners that I can't tell you about. Um, but if you know you want something, like if there's a telescope or a mount you've been looking for, you just have to place the order and wait. Because if you wait longer, you're probably going to get pushed out further and further and further. So that's just kind of a 
the reality of the world right now. So hopefully that answers your question. Um, it's recorded now, so I can just send people to that um, answer. But that's what's going on. Uh, that's a good question, but that's the reality of what's going on. It's not that we don't want to sell you stuff. It's that I don't have anything. Um, and everything that's coming in is spoken for. So it's not a bad problem to have. It's just an inconvenience if you're looking for something cool. So hopefully that answers that. Well, that's pretty much it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Jeff Hall for taking the time out of his morning to spend some time with us. Uh, if you ever get a chance to visit Lowell, uh, go ahead and check all that out. You can go to their website at lowell.edu, I believe is the website there, or just Google Lowell Observatory. But um, awesome place to go check out. So thank you for everyone who uh, joined us this morning. Uh, next week is the first episode of June. We're going to be talking about what's up in the nighttime sky for June. And we've got some other cool stuff coming up um, very shortly. So thanks a lot, everyone. I hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe. Clear skies, and we'll see you guys next Friday. Take care, everyone.